Verse 5, When Yahweh spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites, when a man or a woman commits any sin that people commit, thereby breaking faith with, the Lord, with Yahweh, that person is found guilty. Then he must confess his sin that he has committed and must make full reparations, add one-fifth to it, and give to whomever he wronged. But if the individual has no close relatives to whom reparations can be made for the wrong, the reparation for the wrong must be paid to Yahweh for the priest in addition to the ram of atonement by which atonement is made for him. Every offering of all the Levites, Israelites, holy things that bring to the priests will be his. Every man's holy things will be his. Whatever any man gives the priests will be his. Now, this is a repeat from Leviticus chapters 1 through 6. Okay, there's nothing new here except for one little thing. What God is talking about is, one again, he's, he's putting this here because he's reminding them, you've just made the camp clean. Everything is good now. The tabernacle is built, you're all organized, the unclean are cast out, and you've just done the Day of Atonement. Everything is clean now. So he's reminding them that anybody who defiles the camp must make sacrifices. And it's kind of that last little remember, okay? So you teach your kids how to wash their hands and all that kind of stuff and how to do good hygiene and all that kind of stuff. And you get them all washed up and all brushed up and all that kind of stuff and everything's good. And then you remind them, now that you're clean, remember when you go out there, if you get unclean again, we have to go through all this again. Okay, so please don't play in the mud. <laughs> please don't pick your nose or do weird things, okay? Please, because we're going to have to go through all this again. And that's kind of what he's doing right here. You're all clean now. Let's see if we can go as long as we possibly can before we have to do this again. And so he reminds them. But what's different here is the reparation. Now remember, purification was for your sins. And reparation offerings were for, I wronged you, so I need to repay you in some kind of way because I've wronged you. And so what he's saying is what's new here is what if the person you wronged is now dead? How do you pay them or give something to them? And in that case, Moses now says, if that happens, if I wrong somebody and then they die before I can make reparations, then those reparations go to the tabernacle. They go the, the, to God. And so that's what he's adding here from chapters 5 and 6 of Leviticus. Now, chapter 5, verse 11 is new. And it's if you remember, if you read it, <laughs> You're kind of like, okay, what is going on here? This is kind of weird. This is called a jealousy ordeal. So, Yahweh spoke to Moses. Speak to the Israelites and tell them, if any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man has had sexual relations with her without her husband knowing it, and is hidden that she, is, she has defiled herself. Since there is no witness against her, nor was she caught, and if jealous feelings come over him and he becomes suspicious of his wife, then he is, she is defiled. Or if jealous feelings come over him and he becomes suspicious of his wife when he is not de- she is not defiled, then the man must bring his wife to the priest and must bring the offering required for her. One-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He must not pour olive oil on it or put frankincense on it because it is a grain offering of suspicion or a grain offering of guilt and a grain offering for remembering, but bring iniquity to the remembrance, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. Okay, so a husband is suspicious or jealous that his wife might be having an affair. He can't prove it. 
but he also can't deal with the suspicion. And so he then can then decide that I'm going to find out whether she truly is or not. So he can bring her to the tabernacle to go through an ordeal to figure out whether she is guilty or not. So he doesn't know. He's just suspicious. So the first thing they're supposed to do is he and the wife are to both present themselves before the priests in the tabernacle with a grain offering. However, God says you're not allowed to call it a grain offering. It's a guilt offering. So basically they're going to come with a big pile of grain that they're going to offer up to God as a sacrifice to figure out whether she's guilty or not. But it's not allowed to have oil or frankincense in it. Because remember, the whole point of putting oil and frankincense in grain is because when you burn grain, it smells awful. But if it has oil and frankincense in it, it smells good. This is why you're not allowed to call it a grain offering because it's not going to smell good to God because this isn't about atoning for sins. This is about determining guilt, and that doesn't smell good. And so they're to bring this. Does that make sense? Verse 16, Then the priests will bring her near and have her stand before Yahweh. And the priests will then take holy water in a pottery jar and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priests will have the woman stand before Yahweh, uncover the woman's head, and put the grain offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of suspicion or guilt. And the priest will hold in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse, and the priest will put the woman under oath and say to her, If no other man has had sexual relations with you, and if you have not gone astray and become defiled while under your husband's authority, may you be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. So the next thing is that they now put the guilt offering in her hand. This is what she's offering up to God, so to speak. And this is determined judge. So they put this in her hand, and they get the holy water, which would have come from the wash basin for cleansing your sins. And they put it in a jar, and then he's to scoop up some dust from the floor of the tabernacle and pour it into the jar. Now remember, this is all holy. Why is the dust and the water holy? Because holiness means absolutely unique and unlike anything else. Because this is literally, and on earth, God's house. Everything in God's house is absolutely unique and unlike anything else. And so there's an element here. And so these two things are being mixed. Now what's also very important is that these two things are very important. These go back to creation. The dust of the earth is where we came from, is our life. So we remember we talked about that God, the three things that God emphasizes more than anything in the creation week is the creation of the land, the creation of humans, and the creation of the temple. And the temple is where humans and the land come together. Because the land is where we come from, the land is where we're going to return. And the land is what gives us blessings, and the land is what gives us life, and the land is what allows us to walk with God. And so we are directly connected to the land. We have a connection to the land on a whole metaphysical level and on a physical level. And so God is pulling from the dust, and the idea is you can be mixed with the water and have life, or you're going to be judged and cursed, and this is going to curse you, the dust will. And so she is to stand there and swear that she has not been unfaithful to her husband, as she's holding this grain, and he's standing there with the bitter water. Right? Now, it's not called bitter because mixing dust with water tastes bitter. 
I mean, it might, but not in a bitter sense that we think of bitter. It's called bitter because bitter is often associated with judgment. The woe, the tears, the, all that kind of stuff. Verse 20, it says, But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has had sexual relations with you, then the priest will put the woman under the oath of the curse and will say to her, Yahweh make you an attested curse among your people. If Yahweh makes your thigh fall away and your abdomen swell, this water what causes the curse will go into your stomach and make your abdomen swell and your thigh rot. And then the woman must say, Amen, Amen. Now, Amen just means like truly, truly, or true that. Okay? So, the reality is that's the thing. So, she's going to be required to drink this water. Then the priest will write these curses. So, he writes all these curses on, like, may this all happen to you. He writes them on a scroll. And then he scraped the ink off the scroll into the bitter water. He will make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and that water brings a curse will enter her to produce bitterness. The priest will take the grain offering of suspicion from the woman's hand, wave the grain offering before Yahweh, and bring it to the altar. So then they take that, scrape it off into the water, and she drinks the dust, the water, and the ink of the curses. And she swears that she was not unfaithful. He then takes the grain and he burns it on the altar. Then the priest will take the handful of the grain offering as a memorial proportion and burn it on the altar and afterward make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband, the water that brings a curse will enter her to produce bitterness. Her abdomen will swell, her thigh will fall away, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she will be free of all ill effects and will be able to bear children. So the idea is that her ovaries are going to die and her uterus is going to drop. That's the idea. Okay? Now, is that possible? Yeah. There's tons of medical cases of that happening. You're like, okay, this sounds very magical, God. <laughs> what is going on? Now, there's a couple possibilities. It could be that there might actually be something in the dust that could cause something like this. We don't know this culture very well. We don't know what's going on. Maybe there's herbs that are thrown in. The first thing we must understand is God is not giving us a detailed account of how everything is done. Because remember, God is working within a culture that already exists. He's only describing to them maybe things that are different or things that they didn't understand. So there could be other elements to this that we don't know about. Or it could be that there truly is something in the dust. So a doctor by the name of M.R. Dahan said that this is actually scientifically possible. So, quote, The most probable explanation for the phrase and make your abdomen swell and your thigh waste away is that the woman suffers a collapse of the sexual organs known as prolapsed uterus. And this condition, which may occur after multiple pregnancies, this already happens naturally if you have multiple pregnancies, the pelvis floor weakened by the pregnancy collapses and the uterus literally falls down. It may lodge in the vagina or it may actually fall out of the body through the vagina. If it does so, it becomes um, edematous and swells up like a balloon. 
conception becomes impossible and the woman's procreative life has effectively ended. How do we understand this? It's not magical. Because God is going to make it very clear throughout Leviticus and Deuteronomy that he abhors witchcraft and magical practices. And there's no way he would blatantly contradict himself like this in this kind of an issue, especially when he's like, go in the land and kill all the magicians, all the witches, da-da-da. He just, over and over again, he makes it very clear that he abhors it. So it can't be magic, especially if Yahweh has forbidden this. So there could be bitter herbs that were also mixed into this. And what he's doing is increasing the natural event. This is already a natural thing that happens with multiple, multiple pregnancies. It can. Not that every single woman will automatically happen, um, but it's increasing those effects. Most likely, this is simply just ritual. Now, you would say, wow, but I don't remember ritual creating things like this. <laughs> but does the ritual of sacrificing an animal really truly take away your sins? No. Leviticus made it very clear that animal sacrifices don't really take away your sins. Does the ritual of eating the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, really literally draw you physically closer to God? Can you draw closer to God without eating a little piece of bread and drinking a little thing of grape juice? Yes. Does baptism really truly save you? No. These are rituals. Why do we do rituals? We do rituals because it makes what's up here or in your heart and brain more tangible, more real. We know we can draw closer to God at any time, but there's something about being baptized. There's something about actually taking my faith and my thoughts and not just unconsciously and subconsciously and kind of thinking about it every once in a while or just kind of back there in my mind, but actually stepping up in front of a whole group of people and going through the physical action of being buried with Christ in my sins and being raised again into life with him. That's powerful. We know it doesn't really do anything, but it makes it very concrete in our mind. And we have something physical to grasp to that I have experienced God. There's something here. The Lord's Supper is a very intentional about us getting the time to slow down, to not be distracted by anything else because the entire environment of our sanctuary is set up for this to promote thought and thankfulness. And the whole ritual is to get you to actually take the time to intentionally put physical, tangible, thoughtful action to what you already know is to be true, but life oftentimes just suppresses it back there. That's what ritual does. And so what this ritual does is it forces the woman to actually stand before a group of elders and look them in the eye and swear that she's been faithful. She also is doing this in the house of God. It's one thing for God to say, I will one day punish you if you don't do this or if you do do this. It's another thing to actually physically drink something. That will really make you think about the punishment of God. And if it doesn't taste good because it has dust in it, and the word of God is literally in it, when you drink this thing, it's probably not going to literally do this to her, but what it's going to do is it's going to make very real what she's saying. It's one thing to stand before people. I mean, you know what? They stand, your kids stand before you or whatever. And they're like, I didn't do it. Yeah. That's so easy to say. 
But when you're standing in the house of God and the pillar of fire is standing right in front of you and you're drinking a physical drink in the presence of God that God promised that if you drink this and you're guilty, this will do something to you. And the word of God is in it. That's going to make you think very carefully about what you're confessing or not confessing to. And why does her abdomen swell and all that kind of stuff? Because God has promised to be the king and the judge over this people in a very supernatural and real way. And she is literally standing in the house of God, swearing to him that I haven't done anything. It's not that the bitter water makes anything happen. It's that the bitter water makes what she's doing much more real and concrete so that she will really take thought in what she's doing or what she's about ready to do. And as she's free, and which means most likely, if I, I can only imagine, probably a lot of women wouldn't even gotten to that point if they're truly guilty. Because that would be scary. And so in the same way that none of our rituals literally do anything in a spiritual sense, but somehow that tangible, thoughtful action makes what we already know spiritually true more powerful, it's the same thing. Because God creates to be spiritual and physical. There is no separation. To separate the physical and the spiritual is death. And he meant us to be holistic beings. And so what she, he's doing is taking a spiritual thing and mixing it with the physical so that it, it affects our entire being as she goes through this process. Does it make sense? So doesn't this prove, though, so if, if this does actually happen to her when she drinks it, doesn't it prove that she was guilty? And then doesn't she ultimately end up getting stoned? The implications, according to the law, yes. But according to this passage, he just says that she'll be without children the rest of her life. So does that imply, like, okay, but she's not going to be alive for much longer? And sometimes stoning was, whether you execute your wife was also up to the husband, too. There's other places where God kind of gives the husband permission to, to deal out forgiveness or not as well. And that's since the husband can act as a just, the, he can emulate the justice of God by bringing punishment, or he can also emulate the mercy of God by not punishing in the same way that God does that with his own people, Israel. Um, and then when we get to the book of Hosea, God makes it very clear, like, it is okay to let. And when, when Jesus comes along, he's going to let the adulterous woman go. Not because she was not guilty, but the implications that hopefully a, an encounter with the divine God of the universe would change things. But he had the right to say, you're not going to be stoned. Now, the question is, wow, this kind of seems sexist. What about the man? <laughs> okay, well, first on that, remember, the husband is suspicious of his wife, and there is no evidence so the man is not brought into the tabernacle because he doesn't know of a man. He doesn't know who the man is. So this isn't sexist in that sense because he doesn't even know who the guy is to even bring in. The implication is if the guy is found, then the guy will be stoned because Leviticus and Numbers and Exodus made it very clear that you stone both. Unlike every other culture, when a man and woman are found in the fair, the man doesn't get stoned. The man doesn't get executed, only the woman. But in God's Bible, he makes it very clear that both were punished, period. 
So the reason it feels kind of sexist right now is because he doesn't know who the man is, so there is no man to bring forth. But then the other question that comes in is, okay, but what about the wife? What if a wife suspects her husband? Isn't there something there? Like it could have said he or she, because wouldn't she suspect at times too? Doesn't that give him freedom to do whatever he wants? Because he hasn't... Because remember, this is also a theology book. And this is what you must understand, that this law is not necessarily about trying to give you a 100% picture of how to live your life in every kind of a way, law. Because remember, the law is incomplete. The law only addresses certain issues. In fact, if Israel had been righteous, we wouldn't have these laws. He gave 10 commandments, and the only reason he gives more laws is because they kept sinning. And then when they sinned, he gave more laws. It's kind of like there's so many rules that I did not know that I did not know I had to have in my house until my kids got older. Okay, <laughs> it's like oh my gosh, you can't do that either. Oh my gosh, I didn't even know I had to make a rule on that one. No, don't eat the toilet paper out of the toilet. Okay, like there's all these rules that you never think about until they start sinning, and you're like, then the rules start stacking up. In the beginning, it was easy. Just don't poop with your diaper off. Okay. And that's it. That was like the only one. Don't throw your food or whatever. And please don't throw up at inconvenient times. That's really all it was. But then as I get older, it's like, I need more rules, and I need more rules, and I, need, I never thought about this stuff. And I never, I mean, my Andrew and I have got a list of things, like things I never thought I would ever say to my child. Okay? And that's exactly how the law works. Because the law was supposed to be love God and love others, and you should have been able to figure it all out. If I don't want this done to me, then I shouldn't do it to you. And so the only reason he gives rules is because of that. So the law is not comprehensive. It does not speak to every single area of your life. The point is to give you some laws, and you're supposed to use your brain and figure out how to apply that out. First thing is don't come to this book expecting every single law to be there, which means it's okay if there's not a law there about whether the woman is suspicious. It doesn't make it incomplete. It doesn't make God sexist. But the other thing you need to realize is this is not a law book. This is a theology book about who God is and who we are and how we can know him. And remember that this is all, in a way, a literary foreshadowing of who? Christ. Why is there no woman suspecting the man? Because Christ is never unfaithful to you. In this sense, the man is becoming a typography of Christ, and the woman is a typography of the bride, the church. And the same way when you get to Hosea, the story is about an unfaithful woman to a prophet who becomes an analogy of Israel to God. And there is no reason for us to ever be suspicious of Christ's unfaithfulness, because he's not. And in that sense, when you see this as first and foremost a theology book and with laws or with history, which are all the laws in history and science are 100% true, but the agenda was not to write a science or history or law book, the agenda was write a book about God, then it no longer feels sexist anymore. And that's what you must understand, because even though they may, you okay, well, they're not thinking about Christ, they don't know about Christ, but they are thinking about God. And the only thing that they know about Christ yet is what they're seeing in God. And what they see in God is a God who never divorces them, no matter how many times they have affairs. And this would be a powerful picture that maybe one of the reasons it doesn't immediately bring the stoning in is because this is God. And there are some times where the laws are just laws. But there's other times where they're also foreshadowing other things. And so these are thoughts to keep in mind as we come to these things. This is the law that's presented. Now, why is it also here? 
Because here's one of the reasons that God picks on adultery more than any other sin, even the sins that we like to politically hold up as the biggest sins. The one sin that he picks on the most is idolatry and adultery is because adultery is unfaithfulness to the covenant. And one of the most important things of God throughout the entire Bible is covenant because it's relationship. And God is first and foremost love and relational before he is anything else. Because without love and relation, all those other attributes have no box to fit into. And so the idea is that Israel needs to be reminded of their faithfulness to their covenant. And that what God is trying to communicate here is he will not tolerate hidden sin. And he will not tolerate unfaithfulness to covenants. Because the most important thing that this book is about right now is the covenant. The covenant. And so he picks on adultery and affair and the woman in this sense because what he's trying to emphasize to them is, Israel, you're the adulterous woman. And I'm the suspicious husband. And if you're guilty, you will reap the judgments of this law. And if you're not guilty, then you'll have life in the land. And this is exactly what Moses is going to say. He's going to say, I presented life and I've presented death before you. You choose. And the book of Deuteronomy ends with faithfulness to the covenant. Just like the end of Leviticus ended with vows and faithfulness to the covenant. And all these books are emphasizing that faithfulness. And so this really isn't wholly 100% about a man and a woman. This is a story about God and his people who are his bride, and he's trying to teach them how he deals with it. I will not tolerate hidden sin, which comes right after the, you're now finally clean, and I will not tolerate hidden sin and unfaithfulness, and I will find you out. That's the emphasis here. And that's what we need to remember. No matter how much you've been saved by grace, we've abused that in the Christian church. There is still a sense where God says the word of God is like a double-edged sword and it pierces through bone and marrow and skin to the deepest parts of your soul and it will expose everything and judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And we've forgotten a lot of that stuff. And we've forgotten what the, um, the, Jesus has to say to the seven churches. Most of it is not good. And so the reality is we need to be remembered that yes, we're saved by grace and yes, Christ has covered us. But God, our sins will be found out and God will uncover. And there will not be condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there will be consequences. And that's what God is trying to emphasize here. Does that make sense?